You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Starting uh, uh, tonight in our hermeneutic study, we're going to be talking about who determines the meaning of Scripture. That's kind of the goal for us to look through. So if you follow along on our worksheet, we'll be going through. Uh, But to know, uh, first and foremost, that a study of Scripture lacking thorough interpretive guidelines can lead to inaccurate beliefs. And what I mean by that is, if you just start studying Scripture, not really thinking through why you let certain things come through and certain things you press pause on, and if you never thought through those guidelines you have, there are certain things that you go, okay, exactly how do I interpret this? And, and I gave the example a few weeks ago, that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to the, uh, uh, his son of the faith, hey, all Scripture is inspired by God. Right, profitable for teaching and correction and training and righteousness, for reproof, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then just a few verses later, he says, And Timothy, by the way, when you come, will you please bring my jacket and my books? And none of us in this room have ever tried to give the Apostle Paul his jacket and his books while he was sitting in prison, right? Because you go, well, that wasn't written to me. Well, in fact, the entire letter wasn't written to you. But we take certain verses and we think those we can interpret and some we say we, we can't. And so what I'm saying is we automatically have filters that we're guidelining through how we interpret Scripture that we at least need to say, well, why are we doing these things? So uh, the foundational task of hermeneutics is deciding who determines the meaning of Scripture. Okay, And this, this is going to be a big thing for us to do. But uh, I've got Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 laid out there for you. But if you want to, you can follow along in, in this section because um, if, if, if you don't know the, the story of Ezra, it's, it's a really incredible story where the people of God have been exiled because they have not been living like the people of God. So they went to go live among people who did not know God, and now all of a sudden they're getting to come back. And what Ezra and some of these other guys like Zerubbabel are trying to do is they're trying to say, before we start building our houses and building our markets and getting life back to normal, we've got to start worship back to where it needs to be. This has got to be the foundation of everything we do. So Ezra is what's called a scribe. He's, he's a guy who's going to study the word. And so uh, it says in Ezra chapter 7, in fact, verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. So he's leaving from Babylon, right? It says, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So he's a scribe. He's somebody who's gifted in learning, it says, the law of Moses from the Lord. Okay? So it's the law of who? Moses, but the law comes from who? Lord. So, so Moses wrote it down, right? But it's coming from God Almighty. And this is the picture of what Scripture really is. It, it may come from the hand of somebody named Moses, but it actually comes from the mouth of God Almighty, right? So here's this beautiful picture of what Scripture really is. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Scripture is given to us. And the king had granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord that God was upon him. So he goes on to Jerusalem, he comes up and, and moves down into starting things up. And this is what uh, it says in verse 10 that you've got there uh, on your page. But I think this is beautiful because this was foundational one uh, year when I was reading through the Bible and I got to this place. I thought, this verse here really spells out what I think we need to think through what scripture should be in our life. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to do what? To study the law of the Lord and to what? Do it and to teach right it's teach his statutes and rules in israel so do you get this picture and i think it's beautiful because before he studies it he decides he's going to study it right and you go well that's a no-brainer actually it's pretty important 
You're not just going to come around to studying God's Word. You've got to decide it's important to you. You've got to say, I want this, right? I want to know God's Word better before you're ever going to crack it open. So if you only think that God's Word is supposed to be like this emergency kit that when you're on the side of the road and, and your tire's flat and you need help, then you'll only pull it out as that. If you think the Bible's a first aid kit, you only do it when you're in trouble. But if you go, no, 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 Scripture's something like, I want to know. I want to know the heart of God. So first off, you decide, I want to know God's Word. Then how do you do it? Well, you study it. You, you, you work at it. Uh, everybody here knows that there are certain skills that you've been given in life that you're naturally good at, right? Um, how many of you would say naturally you were athletic people, right? Raise your hand. Okay, you don't have to be humble. Okay, so I'm naturally athletic. How many of you would say that was not given to me? I'm not naturally athletic, right? How many of you feel like you just could read and read and read for hours? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you are like, I am allergic to books? Raise your hand, okay, right? Okay, so there are certain things that all of us, right, we, we, we come into the world a little bit different, right? But I know this, um, there are certain people who are just gifted athletically, but have you ever known people who were gifted athletically, but they also pushed themselves and became, you know, somebody so even far beyond that, Right? They're just, man, they were naturally gifted, and they could, they could step out on the court, and they could probably take everybody on, but then if they really push themselves, they're going to compete, and same thing, like, with, there was naturally, when I, when I started, like, going to school, like, there was certain ease about certain things I could do naturally, but then I started learning, hey, I'll push myself, like, what actually could I do? So Ezra, he's naturally gifted in certain things, but now he says, I'm going to study it, I'm going to go deeper, but why is the point of studying it? I love it, because he says, I'm going to study the law of the Lord, and what's that next phrase, and to yeah, to do it, right? And then to teach it. So, so this is the point. We just don't study God's Word, so we just get really smart and press all of our religious friends, right? The point of studying God's Word is, I actually want to do what's written in it, right? I want to apply it. I don't want to be hearers of the Word. I want to be what? Doers of it, right? Uh, Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 7 this way. He goes, there's a wise man who uh, built his house on the rock, and the, the floods came, right, and burst against the house, but the house stood. Why? And the only difference, there's two people building two houses, one built on the rock, one built on the what? Sand. And the difference was both of them heard the word, both of them had a storm, but only one applied the wisdom of the word in his life. So, there, folks, let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody who knows what to do? They're just not doing it right now? Well, we know plenty of people. You're like, me? Okay, like, I know what I should be doing. I'm just not at this moment. I'm not applying it. Ezra says, I've decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study, and I'm going to study it to the point of when I know how to apply it. In fact, that was one of the things that first somebody taught me how to uh, do a quiet time. I said, well, how much, how many chapters should I read? This is what uh, one mentor told me. Why don't you read until you have something you need to change? Okay? Someday means I'm four chapters in. Some days I'm four words in. Okay, I'm like, woof, put on the brakes. That's it right there. I need, I need, to, I need to work on that. God's not saying, oh, you only got one chapter in? Well, if you really love me, you'd have two chapters in. I think he wants us to study it so we can do it, apply it, right? Put it into our lives, we apply it. And then we start applying it. Then we start doing it. We've studied it. We know what God's Word says. We've applied it to our life. Then this is where it gets fun. You get to do what? Teach it. Somebody else. And you go, I don't know if I have the gift of teaching. There's somebody in your life that you could share what you're learning with. Always. Always there's somebody. So every day when I'm, I'm reading God's Word and, I, and I'm looking through this, I will, I, if, if I'm mindful enough, I'm not saying this is every single day, but if I'm mindful enough, I will say, God, and keep my eyes open for somebody that I can share this with today. Somebody. Might be my kid. Might be my wife. 
might be a counseling situation. I go, oh, this is why I learned this today. I want to share this with you today. What, whatever it might be for us, but, but that's kind of the goal with it. Now, when we think about who would actually authenticate Scripture, right? There, there's ways we can think through who is the actual true authenticator of someone who says this is what Scripture means. So if Ezra's studying it, he's studying it to determine what does it actually mean, right? And there's a lot of ways you can think through that. So, so here's the first thing. Some people think that the reader is the person who authenticates what Scripture says. So you read it, and you decide what you think the Scripture means. Now you know since this is a, a church deal, there's three options. You know this first one's not going to be right, right? Okay, you know this, right? But you probably also can tell this one, right? That if the reader determines the meaning... We arrive at subjective, contradictory conclusions which detract all authority of the text. I, I mentioned to, to this group, I think a few weeks ago, that I had somebody one time read through the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas got on a disagreement on a mission trip and they went on two different ways that someone said, God told me through this verse of Scripture that I could get a divorce. That is not what that passage says. <laughs> and in fact, the Bible actually speaks against that. Well, that's what it means to me. He, he thought the reader was the, the meaning, he, he's the determination of what the text means. That's very dangerous, right? Because, folks, we, we can make say stuff, all kinds of crazy stuff. I've had people defend ungodly beliefs and practices from a verse of Scripture that they took out of context because they go, well, I think that means that to me. I think that's what it means to me. And, and we, we can't do that. The second option for this is that it could be the text, the text itself could be what authenticates what it means. But if the text determines the meaning, we expect the text to take on a life of its own with a meaning detached from the author. So there are some people, it's not as much a prominent view today, but that when Ezra wrote this stuff down, right, if, if, he, if he wrote all this stuff and Nehemiah put all these things together, that later on, read it, and the text kind of takes its life of its own. It could mean something else. And so some people look for hidden meanings. And actually, the author meant this. But if you look at it, you read this, and this verse happens here. And in the way that fall, and all, all kinds of crazy theories where people are just trying to find crazy loopholes in the Scripture. We come down to and what, who really is supposed to authenticate what Scripture means is the who, the author. So, this whole thing about who determines the meaning of Scripture, it must be the author of Scripture determines what it means, above all else, right? If the author determines the meaning, we search for the authorial intention to properly understand the truths, okay? So, we want to know that if someone wrote something to you, you want to know what their intention is. This is, this is what stresses me out. In the world that we live in, uh, have you ever gotten an email from somebody who left the caps lock on? You know what I'm talking about, right? I think my battery just went out here for a second. Hold on a second. Um, the caps lock where every every word is written in caps, you know, and it looks and it, it seems like they're, they're saying something nice. Like I hope you're having a good day. And you're like, why are you yelling at me? Okay, right? Like it's just continuing to to put out like that that vibe. Uh, have you ever read a message from somebody and you can't tell if they're being nice or they're being forceful? Through the written text? You ever been there before? Send you a text message, send you a letter, and you go, I read it one way, and it seems like this person's mad at me, and you're going, person's not mad at you, but it just comes across that way. So deep down, whenever you read something, what are you desperately looking for? You're looking for what the author intended, right? So, like, I, I you know, sometimes I will, um, 
my wife is saying something to me and she'll say, well, are you mad at me? I'm like, no, I'm not mad at you. And she's like, how do I know? I'm like, if I'm mad, I'll let you know. Okay, like the author will let you know I am upset right now. But you don't have to guess. You have to guess with me. The same thing with here. The author has got to determine the meaning of, of what this is. And so for us, where we want to go is, who wrote this word? What did they intend? And that's where the meaning of Scripture goes. If you look in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we find these group of people that we want to be like. It says, now these Jews were nobler than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all, what does it say? Eagerness. They're eager. Examining the scriptures, how often? Daily. Daily to see if these things were so. So here's these group of people that are saying, you know what? Um, they're receiving the word with eagerness. Oh, Paul, what you're preaching is awesome, but we're going to examine and make sure it's correct. That's a pretty good practice, folks. I should be honest with you. So you are here listening to me speak, you, you listen to me preach today, and maybe one day you go and visit another church or you're checking certain things out. Here's what I would encourage you to do, that you want to know whoever is feeding you God's word is someone who is examining the scriptures daily. Someone who's walking with the Lord, knowing these things, because guess what? People can really, uh, the devil comes looking like an angel of light, folks. And people can say whatever they want to and put a verse on it, but we want to know this kind of thing, this kind of group of people receiving the word with all eagerness, that sounds great, but I want to examine it too. I want to make sure what you're saying is accurate and true through this. So if we think through it, how that, that lays out for us in the authorial intent, what's the intent of the author, this is what we believe. At the very heart of hermeneutics is this. The intention of the author determines the meaning. Okay? The intention of the author determines the meaning. So whatever the author decided that it was supposed to mean, guess what? That's what it means. And you go, that's, that really doesn't sound like complex. It isn't, but yet we make it complex. I don't know. Maybe it means this to you. Maybe you're trying to say that. No, no, no. What does the Bible truly, truly say? Now, here's where it gets interesting. In the case of the Bible, we interpret the meaning by the dual authorship of the divine author and the what? Human author. So when we say we want to know the intention of the author... At some level, we're saying, yeah, I want to know what Paul was saying when he wrote that to the Galatian church, right? But I also want to know what was God saying through that as well. Oh, that's where the heart of understanding the meaning is. Um, if you've ever read a lot of the New Testament, you realize this. The Apostle Paul did not write every single letter the same way. Do you know that? Letter of Philippians, I love you people. I pray for you like crazy every time I think about you. Warm and fuzzies all over me. Then he writes Galatia. I wish I could get there right now and take you outside and wear you out. Right? That's the beginning. The first few verses. He's like, I am so sick and tired of you crazy people. I'm going to fix you. You better get it right before I get there or else it's going to get ugly. <laughs> oh, good thing I'm going to the Philippian church. Right? Okay? Like, it's just different. There's a different vibe. And so you find out like, dual authorship. What is God trying to say through this? But what is also that human author trying to say? And that's where we can determine the meaning. Now, the author of any text is the ultimate authority of its meaning. It's not what the reader thinks it means. It's not what the text seems to cross. What was the author trying to convey when it first was put to pen? And once we determine that, we can understand truly what Scripture is. It's not mystical. It's not some kind of weird kind of thing like, I think I see the loophole in it. Or if you put these words and take out the consonants and put in the vowel. I mean, no, no, no. What did the author mean when, when he wrote it down? And we can get to what God's Word actually says. Now this is why well, I think this, maybe this will track with you a little bit. Only with the Bible do we absurdly assert that we can determine the meaning of someone else's message. It's the only place in the world that we do this, right? 
that only with the Bible we are absurd because we assert that we can read this and go, I think I know what this means, and go, well, actually, the author meant this. No, 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 I know better than him. But no, this person wrote it down. Yeah, but I, but I understand it better. It's going to be like this. So you go, what do you mean that we? it's the only place we do that? I'll give you an example, okay? If you think about a government agency, okay, when they send you some type of message, right, is it open to your interpretation or is it based on what the government says? I'll give you a message that you might even see tonight. Ready for it? Is this message open to your interpretation? Speed limit, 40 miles per hour. Some of you go, well, 44, 49, okay, however you do this. Like, you may say that's open to my interpretation, and guess what? If you get pulled over, are they going to go, you know what, that's right. I guess it is open to your interpretation. What is the police officer going to say? No. We've written this as a law. We don't expect you to determine the meaning. We've told you what it is, right? Uh, I'll give you another example. If you go to the bill collector, is the bill collector going to say, you determine what the meaning of this is? Payment due, right? Okay. Is he going to say, hey, on your own time, whatever you want to pay, if you want to get around to it? No. That's typically not the way they do it. They're like, you do it now, or else we're gonna, you're going to pay more, or we're going to send you to some kind of bill collector, and they're going to come take everything you got, right? And you go, well, I interpret that different. When it says payment due, what I mean by due is that, yes, you are deserving of the payment, but therefore, since I don't have it, I'm not going to do that process for you in due time, and therefore, I am duly noted not to do it, okay? And, and they're still say, we're taking your car, okay? Like, that's how it's going to happen, right? The repo man is coming. Your car is gone. You can say, I interpret the message however you want to, but at the end of the day, the person who sent that, they're going to take your vehicle. That's the way it works, Right? Give you another one. Human resources at your company, when they say this to you, you're fired. Guess what? Your key fob's not working on Monday morning, okay? Like, I don't care how you interpret that. If they say you don't have a job, guess what? You don't have a job. You're not getting paid. You don't have access to this thing anymore. But yet when the Bible says, do this, we go, oh, I don't think he means that. I think I can interpret that a little differently. Well, that's cute, okay? Because we don't do that in any other place. We always say, what does the author intend the message to be? And that's what determines the meaning. That's what determines the meaning. So if God writes the word to us through the hand of human authors, we want to get down to what do they mean. The most dangerous question to ask in a Bible study is, what does this passage mean to you? The most dangerous things. Because you can make it mean a whole lot of different stuff out there. But deep down, what does it mean, right? Um, if you've ever read the Old Testament prophet of Hosea. Hosea was in a relationship and that God told him that the wife that he had was a prostitute and he needed to stay with her and then eventually he needed to go buy her back because she had gotten herself in a trafficking system. I can guarantee this, God is not telling any single guy in this room how to get a wife through that book, okay? That's not exactly what that message is trying to say, okay? So some of you are like, okay, good, because I had that on my agenda for tomorrow. That's not what God is saying through this, okay? What is God saying through this book? What was he trying to say through Hosea? My people have been running around me, around, running around on me like a prostitute does, and yet I am going to go buy back what already belongs to me. I'm going to pay the penalty for their disobedience. That's what he's trying to say. Not giving anybody here tips on that person that you're looking for to spend the rest of your life with, okay? But you can make it mean all kinds of stuff. But what does it come down to? 
dangerous question to ask. What does this passage mean to you? We don't want that. A text could have multiple meanings if the author intended to communicate those meanings. Because some people will say, yeah, but, but what if there's multiple meanings? I'm fine with that as long as that's what the author meant to have. It's not meaning like, well, the author meant this, but I just think it means that that is dangerous is playing loose with the text, and you were doing just like Satan himself does with Scripture. And be very, very careful. We can't, we can't play that game. It can't have multiple meanings, only if the author intended to communicate those meanings. Because deep down, it doesn't matter what the Bible means to us, but what it means to God. We want to know what does God mean when he wrote these words to us. When he brings this out, and when he brings this word, now we know, and therefore we know better how to study it, how to apply it, and now how to teach it to other people. Now, sometimes um, we can be careful that, that uh, a lot of times throughout history, people would do something what I call over-spiritualize a text, okay? Um, give you a great example. Um, if you know what an allegory is, an allegory is a story that like every detail actually means something else than what the story is. So uh, have you ever heard the, the parable that Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan, right? Hey, here's all these religious people passing by this needy guy on the road, and all of a sudden here's a Samaritan, and he's the most unlikely candidate to help this person, and he goes and helps the person when someone says, who's my neighbor? And he goes, this, this is your neighbor right here. Well, years ago, it made religious people uncomfortable that the unlikely person would help. So they made a whole allegory of what the donkey meant and what the, the money at the end meant and all the people there and the bandages meant, and the bandages meant something like other kind of... They're just making everything over-spiritualizing, but in reality, what is Jesus trying to get across? Be nice to people. <laughs> like that's the, the, You don't have to over-spiritualize this and make it something that it's not. So be careful that you don't over-spiritualize a passage and miss what I call the plain meaning of a text. And the majority of Scripture, folks, I know you don't think this way because you've been stumped at some point in Scripture. But if you go through scripture, most of the times you can find a plain meaning of what God is trying to get across. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to respond. This is what you need to change. It's not complicated. And so sometimes we over-spiritualize it. I think God's trying to say this. No, no, no. He's actually saying, stop. <laughs> do this. What, whatever it can be to make sure that we know. Now, what role does the Holy Spirit play in this? Because this is so important. Because a lot of times people say, well, I read this and the Spirit told me to do this. Here's what I need you to know. God is not going to change his mind on a matter. Okay? Because if he changed his mind on a matter, that meant that he was wrong in the first place. Okay? Is God ever wrong? No, he can't be. So since I went to a Bible college, went to North Greenville University, there's a lot of people who'd always uh, blame either decisions on the Holy Spirit, say, right, back off, right? God told me to do this. Oh, well, God told you. I'm not going you know, to push against that. I remember a guy who, uh, first week, freshman year, God told him he's supposed to marry this girl. He went up to her and said, God told me you were sitting there on the swing. We're supposed to be married. She's like, well, that sounds good. I ain't got any other prospects on the horizon. Okay, good. So they start dating. About two months later, you won't believe what happened. God told him that he needs to dump her. Huh. Isn't that amazing? God told him to start dating. Now God, God just told me that it's not going to work out. You're not the person I meant. He, he told me this thing. He's like, you know, God revealed this to me. I was like, huh. So God told you to start dating her back in August? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he told you to dump her in October? Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? I'm like, huh. Kind of sounds like God's a schizophrenic or something. He goes, you can't say that. That's wrong. I said, no, no, no. You said it. Because you're blaming him for whatever decision you want to do. 
You're saying the Holy Spirit guided me to do this and this kind of stuff, and I was reading this verse, and I was free to do No, no, no. Stop. So, so the Scripture, right, if we want to know God's will, we go to God's Word. And the Holy Spirit is never going to tell you to go left if the Scriptures have told you to go right. So this is where the Spirit told me to do this. Okay, line it up with Scripture, and I'll go with it. But if it contradicts Scripture, I know that's not the Spirit talking. That's you or Satan trying to tell you what to do, and you're just trying to get everybody off your back and over-spiritualize the matter. Spirit told me to do this. Don't you use God's name in vain. Don't you use it in an empty way. You need to know for sure does God say this. So we want to know what God's Word says. So, so here's where it comes down. The Holy Spirit doesn't teach a secret meaning of Scripture, but He reveals the intended meaning of Scripture. Holy Spirit doesn't have this secret unlocking power like, I know that it says... To be able to go share Christ with other people. But what it actually means is share your snacks with your coworkers. I mean, no, it's a, no it, it just it means what it says. Like this is what the author meant you say. Just go along with what the scripture says. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and, and does what the Holy Spirit does. It's so incredible because Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would teach us and remind us regarding, guess what? Scripture's claims. That's what the Holy Spirit says his, his job is to do. Holy Spirit's job is not, a lot of times uh, Christians will do weird things and blame the Holy Spirit on it. That's not how this works. Jesus said it very clearly, I think, in the best explanation of the Spirit's role in our life. It says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's what he does. So the Holy Spirit comes, he teaches you all things, and he brings to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a scenario and all of a sudden a verse of scripture that you have not looked at in years comes flooding to your mind? Where'd that come from? I never memorized that. What the word that come from? The Holy Spirit going, hey, here's the opportunity. Follow the word. He's bringing it back to your remembrance right in the moment that you need to. Sometimes you're going, oh, this is hard. This is hard. And you're reading, and you're studying. And all of a sudden the light bulb comes on. Who? It's the Holy Spirit bringing it to life. So the Holy Spirit's not going to tell you to go left. The Scripture told you to go right. He's just going to continue to say, yeah, go right. And here's the opportunity to go right. Here's the opportunity to do that. So some helpful questions to ask when we're opening up a Scripture passage. And we're going to practice this here in a second. But number one is this. We look at the author. Who wrote the book? God did. Yep. That's the first answer. But then also the second answer is, who is the human author that actually had... That pen and paper down and started writing this down. It's a helpful question to think through. Who wrote this book? Give you a great example. Um, Matthew, Luke. Okay? Two of the gospel writers. Matthew is a Jew. Luke is a Gentile. Matthew writes to a certain Jewish audience. Luke writes to a certain Gentile audience. So that's why both of them give a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew starts with Abraham because the Jewish people, that's the important part where all the Jewish faith starts. Adam says, we're not all from Abraham. Guess who we all are from? We're from Adam. He goes all the way back to say, you may not be a part of the Jewish faith, but you are part of the one human race. We're going to go back there. We're all part of the same family, and that's where Jesus comes from. Two different authors. But you start understanding, oh, so that's why Matthew has so many uh, Old Testament references, and Luke could really care less about them. Why is that? Because Matthew's trying to show a Jewish audience, you've been studying your Old Testament, here's the Messiah you're looking for. And Luke's saying, bringing up all these evidences of when Jesus would reach out to people who aren't Jewish. Why? They write different stories? No, two different audiences. But you start asking the question, who's the author? And it helps you understand things. Number two, audience. For whom was the book intended? Just like in our example of Matthew and Luke, 
very different audience means a very different thing. Um, uh, give you a great example in Matthew and Luke, um, Mark, different ones. Mark will say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke will say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew will say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew, why don't you say kingdom of God? Why would you say kingdom of heaven? Did Jesus change his mind? Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, and what was Jewish people very fearful of doing? Taking God's name in what? Vain. So in these moments, what he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because he doesn't want to throw that Jewish audience off, or they don't listen anymore. You start understanding that's the audience he was writing to, right? He's not changing the message, but he does also keep them at the table so they keep listening. So you go, that's why it's different there. Okay, because it's a different audience they're writing to. Third is context. What is the context of the passage? What's going on around that time? What's going on uh, in the context of, uh, okay, Jesus seems a little bit uh, more like he's sharing some intimate details with disciples. Why is that? Because he's hours away from being arrested, going to his crucifixion. Okay, that makes sense, right? You start understanding the context of, of what's going on in the passage. In that context, you also think about kind of linear where it's at. But fourth is this, before, what precedes the passage, right? What precedes the passage that you're studying? You want to know what came before this, right? It's kind of important. Okay, so, so what led us this place? Last week we talked about Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great, but do you know that you can be content in all circumstances and therefore I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? What happens before that passage? And the next thing is this. It's after. What follows the passage? What comes after that, right? So very important to know. So if we just read a verse out of context, we miss the context of where it is. What's coming before it? What's coming after it? What's giving us that context that we need? And then here's also, if you ever run into something that goes, this is hard to understand. I, don't, I, I can't get how all this works together. You think the totality of Scripture, how do other passages interpret this passage? So in the rare cases where there's a big question mark on Scripture, and I'll say rare cases because typically the, the, the main point of a passage you can get, sometimes you go, oh, what does that mean? You look at other places that talk about the same thing, and you start opening up the Scriptures and saying, what does the totality of Scripture say about this issue? So I want to walk through this, this kind of guide for a second called the interpretive journey because one of the processes of hermeneutics is to think about it this way. So let's just imagine, for example, if I were to draw this picture for you, uh, of a, a town that's kind of far away, right? So uh, here is Jesus serving over in Nazareth, right, and in Galilee and all these different places. This is what you've you got to think through, to take what was written there and bring it to our situation. So the first thing is, is when you read Scripture, is grasping the text in their town, what did the text mean to the original audience? This is so incredibly important to understand. So you go all the way back and say, what did it mean when Jeremiah first wrote that? Right? What did it mean when Jeremiah's audience first read it? Because I guarantee this, if it meant this to Jeremiah and to his audience, and you think it means something else, you're not walking in line with God's truth. Because it cannot mean what it never meant. Okay? It's got to go back to, what did Jeremiah, when he wrote this down, give you a great example. Uh, probably one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for a future, plans for hope, for welfare, not calamity. That sounds great. That's awesome. 
<laughs> if you read Jeremiah 29, 1 through 10, you will be very, very depressed and discouraged tonight. You know why? He says, hey, just want to let you know you're about to be sent into exile, and guess who's doing it? Me. God says, I'm going to send you next. So I'm going to let Babylon come in, take you guys, wipe you out, take you off there. But don't worry. While you're there, I want you to go ahead and get married, have babies, plant gardens, build houses. Because guess what? You're going to be there about 70 years before I let this go. You're going to have 70 years in exile. But then one day I'm going to bring you back. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you. Plans for future and hope. It's going to be 70 years from now. Well, how many of you, the last time you quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, was thinking, and it's going to be 70 years until he allows that to happen in my life. Right? I'm going... About 70 minutes, okay? <laughs> that's, that's my timeline, right? And yet, you've got to understand this. When Jeremiah's audience first read that, they're going, You mean we're going to be there for 70 years? Our disobedience costs us that much time? God goes, I know, but I got the plans for you. But you're going to have to serve some time and time out and wake up a little bit. You're going to have to wake up. So you, you, gra- you have to grasp the text in their town first and foremost. Then, measuring the river's width to cross. What that means, kind of if you're thinking of that imagery again, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? So when you get to Jeremiah chapter 29, what's different? So if there's their city, imagine it. There's their city and our city. Jeremiah's over here. We're over here. There's this river in between us. How big is that, that river, that width we got across? That's pretty big. I'm not a part of Israel's nation, right? I'm not going into exile. There's a pretty big river there that's different, okay? So what, what so, so at least identify the difference between us and them and not just blindly asserting myself into the text. Third thing is crossing what's like a principalizing bridge. So what is the theological principle in the text that can get us from where they are to where we are, right? So if this meant for the Israelite people 70 years in the Babylonian exile, now what is one thing that I know for sure that God is saying? This is what God is saying through that passage. Okay, briefly. God is sovereign over all the affairs of mankind, and he is willing to let his people be punished to wake them up for a greater good. Right? And he doesn't mind, even if it seems to ruin his reputation for a season, to protect what he's doing long term. But even in the midst of it, even the hardship, there is no enemy that can outrun God, can outpower God. And when God says the time is over, the time is over, and his people will be back. Now there is a principalizing bridge that can say any context, any time, we can walk with. So then we can consult that biblical map. So how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And we know this, okay? Big picture. That is the truth of God, that he is sovereign, that he's working his plan, even when we're doing bad stuff. He's working it out. He's seeing incredible things happen. And so it helps us understand the whole narrative of Scripture, what he's doing. And then and only then can we do this last text right here, grasping the text in whose town? Our town. How should individual Christians live out the theological principles today? Well, if I think through that passage of Scripture, here's what, what I do know. That I'm probably going to live a few decades of life in exile too. Right? This isn't my home. And I'm living in a state of living in disobedience, and now I've got to learn what does it mean to, to live in this. Now, it says the, the practice. Here's what I want to do. I want you, you see that verse there? I know some of you can go ahead and quote it, but I want you to turn to John chapter 3 for a second. I want us to, to, to practice this because this is important for us to see how we're going to be doing this as we start looking at different passages and different places in Scripture. But John 3.16 is that place where, um, you know, you might see on a sign at a football stadium or 
somebody's yard out there and many of you know right now if i were to say for god so loved the world that he what he gave right you know this verse you're like oh i got that one down i, I memorized it but here's what i need you to know if you do not understand john 3 14 you do not understand john 3 16 there's no way Let's look at John 3.16 for a second. <clears throat> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay? Who's writing this book, by the way? Who's the author? John is. John, as you might remember, he was one of the 12 what? Disciples. He was actually Jesus' best friend. When John wrote the book, he said, the reason I'm writing this is so you'll know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and come to faith in him. That's why I'm writing this whole book. Okay? That helps us understand. All right? Um, context of this, just for Tom's sake, I'll, I'll look, look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, stop for a second. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Do the Pharisees like Jesus? No. He comes to him at what time? Night. Why would he come to him at night? Shame. He's afraid. He wasn't anybody to see that he's coming to Jesus. He's curious, but he don't want anybody to know. Right? Okay? Jesus walks through all these different things. Nicodemus asked him a question. Jesus goes, I'll ask you a question. <laughs> I just, I asked you a question. Why do you keep doing this, right? Nick at night keeps throwing all this stuff at him, right? He said, okay, we do this and do this and do this. And Jesus keeps throwing more questions at him, questions at him. It goes on from there. Um, let's see. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how do you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What in the world does that have to do with Moses and a snake? You better understand that, or else you don't get verse 16. Now, all right, here's where I'm going to teach you a little bit, okay? Some of you have a, a very stripped-down Bible and not a lot of notes, but some of you around verse 14, there might be a little, like a, a little letter or something there giving you a footnote. I want to teach you this, okay? So do you see in there like a verse reference, a cross-reference of verse 14? You might see it? All right, Numbers chapter what? 21? 8 and Oh, look at y'all go. All right, so we're taking a turn to the left, okay? Here, Bible trivia time. Go to Numbers chapter 21, okay? Because the Bible just said this might be important. Jesus said, if God so loved the world, you need to understand this. Numbers chapter 21. Y'all don't know your hands are going to get a workout tonight, but I'm proud of you. You're doing good, okay? So just as Moses lifted up the serpent... Okay, got it? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. What in the world does this have to do with Moses and some snake? I'm so glad you asked. Numbers chapter 21. Let's start in verse number 4. Because you see the paragraph there. It says, From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a minute. I thought you said there was no food, and now you just said this worthless food. Which one is it? Both, okay? <laughs> just, okay, you're giving us food, but it's awful. We don't want it, right? So there's no food, no drink. We're just going to die out here, God. God said, so you were slaves in Egypt, and I've rescued you, and now you are wanting to go back. Okay? All right, fine. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a what? Set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Story over. Make sense, everybody? Because it didn't me first time I read it. What in the world? Because you read that, let's be honest with it. What does it sound like Moses is making? An idol. It's like a totem pole or something, right? You put a bronze snake on a pole and everybody gets bit. Run to the pole and like, oh, stare at it. Now I'm okay. That's really weird. That's really, really weird. Now, what's, what's happening here? Okay. People have been, have been redeemed by God. They're being brought out. You know, now they're going to the promised land. But on the promised land, they start sinning. And now God's condemnation for their sin is what? It's death. The death comes from a certain instrument. This instrument is fiery snakes. You're like, snakes are bad enough for me. Fiery snakes? They're, they're venomous snakes. They bite you and you die. And they go, we can't do this, Moses. We need an intercessor, somebody to stand in between us and God's wrath. Moses, help us. God, what do you want me to do? Why don't you take us, I don't know, why don't you make a symbol of what God's wrath is against the people? Why don't you lift it up? And if the people will gaze upon it, they shall be saved. Okay? Pray to the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So in this context, a serpent was the image, the tangible way that God's wrath was coming against the people. And now, the only way they could be delivered is if that image was lifted up and they put their faith in that symbol so that that instrument that was once used for death is actually the cause for their life. Okay? Go back. I'll read from John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be what? <laughs> lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let me, um, just spoiler alert, um, tonight when you're going home, I hope you don't have to see an ambulance, but if you do, you might notice something about the ambulance, the EMS symbol. There's a pole. Does anybody know what's around that pole? Snake. For a place of healing that comes to rescue you. Here's this picture of God's wrath comes in the form of a snake. And God says, put that symbol upon and that... The concept of believing in it's funny, right? It's not them going, I believe in the snake, okay? I believe in the snake. It's this, you get bit, and if you run to the doctor instead of going to that, you die. 
If you run to your mama instead of going to that, you're going to die. Belief meant, get out my way. I've got to go to the only way for salvation that God has set up. And just as that snake got lifted up in the wilderness, so those people put their faith in what God said, the Son of Man was lifted up upon a what? Cross. The cross was a symbol of God's judgment against people, right? It was what every single one of us was geared towards. God's wrath upon us. Here is this symbol. And Jesus is lifted up in the wilderness for us that unless we believe in him, we've been bitten in the side by the sting of sin. And unless you run to it with all your, your might and say, that's the only way to salvation, guess what? We'll die in our sin. So here's this picture that in John 3, when he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, what does that mean? He gave you the, just a couple of verses ago, just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And then you go, you look and find those verses, and all of a sudden, the light bulbs start coming on that you realize this, that in that moment, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you know this story, right? You know that God's wrath against God's people came up and was lifted up so that if they put their faith in that, they could be saved. That's going to happen to me, Nicodemus. Keep your eyes open, because the cross is coming. And so when you... Just some simple, first and foremost, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel that I think all of us need to be reminded of. This is the hope of salvation. God's wrath come against us. Some place before us if we put our hope and faith in it, that is our salvation. To where we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can be saved from the sting of sin and death. But also, it gives us this great picture of Throughout Scripture, God has so masterly woven his story, and they're not isolated 66 books. It's one story he's weaving together, pointing this picture. So while this place in Numbers was meant for something at one place, Jesus starts connecting the dots later on and saying, here's the fuller, deeper meaning. And so what I want to encourage you to do as, we start this, as we're going through this process, don't just read John 3, 16 and go, I get it. Start spreading out a little bit. Huh. What's Moses and serpent about? You start looking. You start unpacking. Who wrote this? What's going on in the context? What's Jesus trying to get across? And the fuller, deeper meaning. And so when I read now John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, I realize this. I am the one who should have died in the wilderness of my sin, but Jesus was lifted up so that I would not have to die. And it takes on a greater meaning to me just because why? Not because I interpreted what it meant. Not because I decided what the text meant or the text decided what it meant. God, the author through the pen of John, helps me understand God's truth, and I love him ever more because of it. This is the task that we get to, that God is asking us to follow. John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And that's our prayer. Let's pray to him now. Father, we just ask that as we think through, that we know that it is you, God, who determines the meaning of Scripture. It is your book, and you have inspired people to be able to write these words down. We don't want to know what we think it means. We want to know what you have said that it means. We want to know your word in its fullest context. We want to know what the message you're trying to get across and not just try to determine the meaning on our own. So the more that we study it, the more we, we start to understand more and the more we get obsessed almost with learning even more and the, the dots start connecting and we start seeing the fuller picture and you become even more greater and glorious than we even thought you could be. Not because you've changed, because our eyes have been opened. And your word says that we should pray that we would that you would open up our eyes so we may behold wondrous things from your law. That you would open the eyes of our heart that we may be enlightened to what is the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints of God. And we thank you for this word. 
because it points us to you. Help us to know it, to study ourselves, to do like Ezra did, to decide to study it, and then study it with all of our heart, and then to apply it, and then to teach it others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.